It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. My name is Daniil Hartman, and I'm the president of the Shalom Hartman Institute. Today is Tuesday, December 29, 2020, and this is For Heaven's Sake, a podcast from the Hartman Institute's I Engage project. Our theme for today is entitled Two Israels. In each edition of For Heaven's Sake, Yossi Klein Halevi, senior research fellow at the Institute here in Jerusalem, and myself, will be discussing a current issue central to Israel and the Jewish world. And then Ilana Steinhain, director of the Hartman faculty in North America, will explore with us how classical Jewish sources can enrich our understanding of the issue. At the Hartman Institute, we approach the Israel conversation as we do all our conversations, from a perspective of Jewish values, seeking broad and deep engagement. Our aim is to encourage a serious and respectful conversation on Israel across political lines, promoting understanding and strengthening Jewish peoplehood. COVID has brought up the best in Israel and the worst. Israel has already vaccinated hundreds of thousands of its citizens. And if the supply of the vaccine keeps the pace as planned, we will be one of the first countries to achieve immunity. As Israelis, we expect this. It is consistent with our self-perception as the people who get things done and our ethos as a nation that takes care of its own with a strong social safety net, which includes national medical care, education, including world-class university education at a minimal cost, and remarkable social services for people with disabilities. And yet there's another Israeli story about COVID. We are also one of the first countries to enter into a third lockdown. We have had one of the highest rates of infection in the world. And the social solidarity so crucial to achieving success against a pandemic has been woefully missing. Our government has been able to set up the complex structure needed to acquire and distribute the vaccine to all segments of the society, including the periphery, and yet is not able to implement, let alone enforce, its own policies and stated regulations. Yossi, it's wonderful to be with you. Great to be with you. And Daniil, we're both post-vaccination. Yes, there's good news and bad news to that. You know that, Yossi, because in Israel, they said elderly, (laughs) 60 and above. So I'm happy I got the vaccine, but I'm I'm ambivalent about the classification. Well, we're 60 and above, but not elderly. Today's theme, as you know, was inspired by your recent op-ed in the Times of Israel entitled Netanyahu's Two Israels. Now, in your op-ed, you focus principally on Netanyahu's responsibility for this duality. Now, without discounting your claim, in today's discussion, I want to go beyond Netanyahu and try to understand why, what, and who else, or what else, are shaping this Israel of contradictions. Let's begin with the positive for a moment, with the good story, what we could call the Israel of Nahas. We're not the wealthiest or the most powerful of countries, 
We also don't have any special protection with Pfizer. Why do you believe we are having such initial success? This moment plays to at least two strengths in the Israeli national character. Uh, the first is our capacity to respond uh, to short-term emergencies, especially emergencies that we define as life and death. And nobody's better than Israel in dealing with short-term life and death missions. The second strength in our national character is the vitality of the social contract between citizens and our government. The Israeli government feels free to make demands of its citizens that no other Western government will make of its citizens. We are expected to instantly mobilize as a society. The reason that those demands are regarded by Israelis as legitimate is because we know that when it comes down to the crunch, our government will take care of us. The strength of the social contract is being played out here. And the fact is that we all expect our government to be doing this. We expect Israel to be in the front rank of countries getting the vaccine at this moment. We're proud of that, but we're not surprised because that's who we think of as who we are. At our best, that's who we are. So at our best, we are a country that knows that we can count on our government and our government knows that they can count on us. And when you put those together, you have both a government marshalling and you have a people marshalling. And we have what? The highest percentage of vaccination in the world per population. And you're right, by the way, that's one of the most beautiful parts about Israeli society. I remember when I came back to Israel in the 90s and the Intifada was starting again, and there were all these attacks and you were worried. I taught my kids, when you're in danger, find a stranger. There is a sense that the public sphere is by and large a safe sphere, especially when we add your first point in, in exceptional moments. We are a country when in danger, we're there for each other. And I think that's very powerful. But let's go even a little deeper. Why do you think so many Israelis themselves are stepping up to get the vaccine? The response of the society is remarkable. I think that it has a lot to do with the Jewish ethos of medicine, of trusting doctors. And there's really something in the Israeli character, and I think it's the Jewish character, I'm only being half facetious here, that uh, we trust our doctors, we trust our version of, of Dr. Fauci. It's not just trusted doctors, I would argue. In the Jewish tradition, there is almost no anti-science movement. Our tradition didn't make as many science claims and didn't posit some dichotomy between faith and reason in the same degree as you see in some other religious traditions. To the extent of Maimonides, one of his great lines in his Guide to the Perplexed, part 225, he says that if Judaism appears to be contradicting reason, you know that's not what it means. <laughs> it's just you're reading it wrong. There could be no place for a contradiction between our tradition and reason. And, and as a result, for most of Jewish history, science was embraced by our tradition and was not threatened by it. And we just knew that we had to reinterpret. So this notion of trusting doctors, even though you were a little facetious, I think it hits to a very, very deep point to the nature of how our religion and science have interacted by and large 
for most of our history. It connects very deeply with the issue of pikuach nefesh, of saving, of saving life. There's a lot of skepticism in Israel about many of our institutions. Uh, the Knesset, uh, the police, the courts don't rate high in public trust. But the medical establishment, the army, they do rate high. And I think that there is this basic trust in Israel that when it comes to life and death issues, there are those on whom to depend. And if your government is going to tell you this is a matter of life and death, you can trust that. I think there's another side that we, got, we have to add in there, and that has to do with a core value in Israeli society. That value is that you should not be a friar. That you should, well, how do you say friar in English? Uh, sucker. Thou shalt not be a sucker is like one of the cardinal sins in Israel and in the Middle East in general, but in Israel, we've defined it. And I, I saw this feeling when they started to start inoculating. It was really interesting. There wasn't enough for everybody. The minute they started and saying, okay, it's there, and you weren't sure if you were going to get it second, that what, they're giving it out and I'm going to be left out? So I think we also benefited this intimacy, this society of nobody, of both a combination of, of crisis-centered management, excellence at these moments, trusting that your government is serious, trusting science, and also wanting to make sure that my neighbor, they got it and I didn't get it. So I think all of that led to, get, created this really remarkable moment. Yes, yes. Everything we're saying, Danielle, breaks down when it comes to our brothers and sisters in the Haredi community. One of the things that's really gnawing at me these last few months is that we are seeing a subtle shift in the hierarchy of values, of Jewish values, in the Haredi community in their response to COVID. Until COVID, if you would have asked me what is the ultimate Haredi value, I wouldn't have hesitated to say, Bikuach Nefesh, saving life. Saving life is above any and every halacha consideration. I can't say that with the same certainty anymore, because what we've seen in the Haredi response these last few months is that there is actually a value for them that is higher than Bikuach Nefesh, and that's Talmud Torah learning Torah, keeping their educational systems running. Uh, what you heard in the Haredi community over and over again was, even during the Holocaust, we yeah. didn't stop illegally teaching our children Torah. This is a moment of truth, not only for Israel, I think for every society, where uh, Corona is holding up a mirror to us. And what we're seeing is, on the one hand, extraordinary efficiency in vaccinating and in, in saving lives, and a breakdown in our ability to function as a unified society in the long term. I think it has something to do with our ability to deal with short-term emergencies. One of the great strengths of this society is our ability to move in and out between states of emergency and states of, of normalcy. And you'll see it when there's a terror attack. And a few hours later, you can go back to, that, to the scene of the attack. Not a trace that it was there. The scene of a terror attack is scrubbed clean. And I think that says a lot about Israel psychologically and how we have to cope. When you know that an emergency can happen at any moment, you're always prepared to step in. But you're also 
this, the flip side of it is you don't stay in a state of emergency. You look for the first escape hatch to go back to normal life. And I think we did that after the first lockdown. Soon as the first lockdown was over, we declared victory, we marked the V, and we went back to normal life, and we have not been able to re-inhabit that state of emergency ever since. Interesting. So for you, the primary cause here is both for our success and our failure are really the same. There is a very strong social safety net here. In Israel, government is not part of the problem. Government is the solution, which is a beautiful thing. And the safety net is so broad. People are willing to use it. I think part of what happened here is that the solution to COVID wasn't just going to come from government. The solution to, to COVID has to come from a certain sense of citizenship and collective responsibility on that level, not for a short-term crisis. And I think the tribal nature of Israeli society, uh, you know, the uh, president speaks of the fact that there are four tribes, but we know that's a joke. It's sweet, but there's probably about 59 tribes in Israel. Even each neighborhood in Tel Aviv might be a tribe. So I think part of what people saw and felt was, you know, the problem is their tribe. And, oh, and look what they're doing. And once you tribalize both the infection rate and you tribalize the failures, you exonerate yourself. It's like, even when you say Haredi or Arabs or Tel Aviv or this, imagine a country which is not white and blue, but a country which is, I don't know, 49 different colors and each one is looking at each other. There's something about our shared collective responsibility to each other, not the responsibility of the government and not our responsibility to stand next to each other in, in, in short-term crisis, but a deep sense of being one society there for each other and how what you do is going to impact on everybody else. I think part of what we're seeing in COVID, and I think we're also seeing it in the electoral system, is a breakdown in this collective story. And uh, when I look at this, and one of our big questions, the question we have to look at is how do we use this moment to learn about what we need to do for the future? And so on the one time, there's much to have nachas about. And at the same time, I think we have to look at that failure. And the failure of how do we create a civil society with long-term abilities? And more than that, how do we look at the deep divides in this country? And it's not just divides between Jews and Arabs. Divides within our Jewish community, and not just between secular and Haredi, but between Tel Aviv and B'nai Brak, and between each neighborhood in Jerusalem. You know, what color is your neighborhood? I think our society is going to have to ask itself, how do we do much better in our ability to build that sense of collective solidarity? Let's take a short break. And when we return, Ilana Steinhey will join us. Hi, my name is Michal Biton, and I am a scholar in residence at the Shalom Hartman Institute. Just before the election, as part of our symposium on Judaism, citizenship, and democracy, nine of our faculty members, including myself, came together to record short reflections on ideas that matter to Jewish communities today. To see the series, you can go to our website, shalomhartman.org context. Ilana, it's great to be with you. Great to be with you. I have to say the two of you have the buoyancy of people who have gotten vaccinated. 
<laughs> I mean, the lightheartedness at the beginning of this conversation. I'm like, these two people have been vaccinated. What a joy to be with you. I hope I can get the vaccination through some audible contagion. <laughs> the truth is, I'd like to stop right there. Our true joy is the joy of total learning and how we take our society and the lens that you each time bring. Because there is no greater, greater joy than, than Torah. So Ilana, what Torah do you want to share with us today that you think could enrich and shape our thinking on this divided Israel or the two Yeah, I, you know, I'm listening to the two of you and, and I really love that each of you has a different diagnosis. You know, and Yossi's asking, is it that people want to move past crisis? So they just try to go back to normalcy. And you're asking, Danielle, is it about government versus the way that people actually treat each other? And I want to pick up on your read, Danielle, not necessarily because I think it's the read about Israel. I think it's the read about COVID. I don't know if it's more this or more that, but I do know that COVID in, in just about every society has been testing the question of mutuality among people. And we all know that if you want a healthy society, you can't be in a society where people are just cynically taking whatever they can get for themselves. They have to be willing to give something up for the other. And I think the trouble is, and I think you identified it, which is everybody's worried about being taken advantage of. I'm going to give a little for you from my interests and you, I'm going to give an inch. You're going to take a foot. And I think that that can underlie a lot of the conversation about people engaging with each other through opportunism, serving their own interests and not the greater good. And if that's what we're going to think about, I, I want to bring up the rabbinic concept of lifnim mishurat hadin. Now, lifnim mishurat hadin, people usually translate that as going beyond the letter of the law. I think of lifnim mishurat hadin as like um, keep the change. Now, you do a little extra for somebody else. But literally, lifnim mishurat hadin means staying within the line of the law, meaning by rights, you could claim all the way up to a certain line, but instead of claiming everything that's your right, you give up a little, you stay within the line, you move back a little bit, you give to others. Now, within Lifnimi Shirat Hadin and the ability for people to be able to give up a little bit of what's coming to them for the greater good or for how it's gonna impact somebody else, the rabbis themselves know that there's a friar possibility. They see it themselves. And I want to look at a story from Bava Metzia 30B in which this concern that you're going to give up a little bit of your side and your interest for someone else and the other person's just going to use that as an opportunity to take advantage of you. I want to see the way the rabbis deal with this, okay? So here's the story. A little bit of background just to know the context that we're talking about, the uh, responsibility mandated by the Torah of people helping each other with burdens. Literally, you see somebody who has a burden that they're carrying on their animal, on themselves, and they ask you for help. You got to help them, but not everybody does. If you're older, higher stature, you're actually completely exempt. Okay, so that's the background for the story because we're about to meet a guy who needs help with his burden, asking somebody who's exempt from helping him. Perfect opportunity to just say, no, I'm going to move on. Here it goes. Rabbi Yishmael, son of Rabbi Yossi, was walking on the road. A certain man encountered him. That man was carrying a burden that consisted of sticks of wood. He set down the wood, he was resting, and when he was ready to leave, he asked Rabbi Yishmael for some help. He says, can you lift these sticks for me and place them upon me? Now, we know, as the omniscient reader here, 
that Rabbi Ishmael has no responsibility to say yes. He's actually exempt. He's one of those people. He's older. He's of a certain stature. Totally exempt. He could walk away. He could say, I'm sorry. That's not what I have to do. But he actually wants to do something for this other guy. He wants to help. So he says, you know what? I'm going to buy them. I'm going to buy the sticks. Rabbi Ishmael says to him, how much are they worth? In other words, he figures, here's how I'm going to help this guy. He won't have to carry the sticks home. I'm going to buy them from him. He'll be able to use the money when he gets home and buy more sticks if he wants them. Perfect. Look at this Lifni Mishurat Adin. Rabbi Shmuel's being so generous. He's giving a little bit. He could have walked away. Instead, he's offering, paying out of his own pocket. And he doesn't need the sticks. But the man with the sticks says, they're worth a half a dinar. So Rabbi Ishmael, son of Rabbi Yossi, gives him half a dinar. He takes the wood. And he says, I don't, I don't need this wood. So he just puts down the wood. He says, whoever wants the wood can take it. Ownerless, have it, hefker, what we call in rabbinic parlance. So nice. But this is where the trouble starts. The man who has the, had the sticks, and now he has a half a dinar in his pocket, he should say, thank you, he should walk away. But he doesn't. He sees an opportunity to make a profit. Same man goes and picks up the sticks again, turns to Rabbi Ishmael, son of Rabbi Yossi, again, and says, can you help me lift this wood? And Rabbi Ishmael, son of Rabbi Yossi, again, gives him another half a dinar. Now this guy's making a profit. Rabbi Shmuel takes the wood. He says, I don't need this wood. Anybody who wants it can come and take the wood. So what do you think happens? The man, he's not content now that he has a full dinar even. He wants to come take the wood again. So he sees, Rabbi Shmuel sees that the man wants to take the wood again. And Rabbi Shmuel son of Rabbi Yossi says to him, ah, 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 ah. I said anybody can take these sticks but you. You cannot have these sticks. And then the Gemara says, like, what, what, what's going on here? Why does Rabbi Shmuel even help this guy? And the Gemara says, Rabbi Shmuel was trying to help. He was trying to do Lifnimi Shurat Adin. He could have walked away. He could have said, my rights up to the line are to say, I don't have to help you. But he tries to help. And what happens when he tries to help? This guy takes advantage of him, trying to help. So if you end the story here, what the rabbis would be saying to you is, you know, Lifnimi Shurat Adin, it's a nice concept. It's a nice concept, giving up a few, a little bit of your rights, but watch out for those people who will take advantage of you. Don't be the sucker. But that's not the way the story, or I should say the page ends. A few lines later, the rabbis make sure, or the editors really, make sure that that's not the takeaway message. Just a few lines later, we have the following. Rabbi Yochanan said, Jerusalem was destroyed because they adjudicated cases on the basis of Torah law. What do you mean? The Gemara continues. What else should they have done? Should they have adjudicated the cases on the basis of some other legal system? No, says the Gemara. The problem is that they established their rulings on the basis of law and they didn't do lifnimi shuratatim. They didn't go beyond the letter of the law. They didn't force people to sometimes say, I renounce some of what's coming to me. Instead, they said, well, the law gives you this, you take this. The law gives you that, you take that. With no worry about how that might have impacted the other person for the greater good. So instead of ending the story with, nice concept, but watch out for the people who will take advantage of you, the Gemara ends it with something much more profound, which is, you know what a society that's broken down looks like? It's a society not only where somebody will not give of what's coming to them for someone else and the greater good, but the reason they won't do it is because they know 
that their act of generosity is gonna be met with someone else taking advantage of them. That's the full breakdown of society. Don't get to a point where a Rabbi Ishmael is willing to give and the other guy uses it as an opportunity to take advantage of him. And I think that's what I really worry about because there are always going to be people who are not willing to give up for someone else. It's just, it's not their personality. It's not the way they were taught. But what I really worry about are the people who would be willing to give up for somebody else, but they know that they're in such a cynical system that if they do that, others will just take advantage of them. That to me is a real breakdown. That's a real problem that requires a re-education and a re-incentivization for everybody. Ilana, I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, as you were talking, that's a lens on which you could see the breakdown between the tribes in Israel society. Each tribe is trying to take as much as it can and is frightened that if it does something, if it takes the lead, then somehow it is the other tribe that's going to win. And when you have a tribal society with, with where your primary loyalty is to your tribe, everybody's worried about what the other tribe will take if they are the ones who say, okay, I agree. And so each one is trying to take as much as they can because what will happen with the other one? And you know what? You can't have a unity government either. <laughs> it's on every level, right? Meaning it's in the interpersonal, it's in the tribal, and it's in the political. Right? You, you, you can't have a coalition if you're not truly going to be willing to give something up. And if you're not going to worry all the time that if you give something up, who's benefiting and how are they hurting you? It's a different spirit. And as the rabbis say, if you reach that type of moment, that's a society that's going to be destroyed. Do you sense that spirit in Israeli society, Yossi, or lack of? Because on the short term, you have this on the short term, but sometimes a shortage of it in the long term. Look, I know that you don't want to take this in a Haredi, everyone else direction. I, I think that objectively, that's where much of Israeli society is. And you mentioned Arab Israelis in passing. I would give them center stage here because they're the other peripheral community. And yet during Corona, they've been outstanding. And there really is a sense among, among many Israeli Jews that for the first time we were acting together with Arab Israelis in a, in a common purpose. We don't have that common purpose today with the Faridim, and that worries me. The word trust is in here, right? Meaning what Yossi, what you described as people saying, even during the Holocaust, we still you know, did our hidden Torah study, right? What, what's the comparison there that's implicit? The implicit comparison is you are our enemies and you are forcing us to try to shut this down. There's a real lack of trust. Go visit my daughter in Tel Aviv, actually in Yafo, and you'll see how, how a whole group of people have almost from the beginning, they don't wear masks, they congregate. So the only thing I would suggest is that I have no problem talking about Haredi. I have no talk, problem talking about Israeli Arabs, but I think what Ilana is saying is not the domain of one community. I think that idea that society breaks apart when each person is frightened about what the, how the other one will take advantage, I want to tell you it's all over. It's, it's amongst you know the, the, uh, the young, the secular, the Tel Aviv, the, whatever it might be. Um, and I think the lesson of Ilana, if we just focus on one tribe sense, 
I think we're going to shortchange the deep challenge that it poses to all of us. Because at the end of the day, our society is only going to grow and grow from Corona. If we ask ourselves, not how did the other one fail, but how did each one of how could each one of us create a society where Lifni Mishurat Tadim is a challenge that I feel safe engaging in. It was wonderful being with both of you, as always. For heaven's sake, is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. Today's episode was produced by David Svi Kelman and Tali Cohen and edited by Tali Cohen with an assistance from Mary Miller. And music is provided by SoCal. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We want to know what you think about the show. You can write to us at for heaven's sake at shalomhartman.org. Subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, and everywhere else podcasts are available. Yossi and Ilana, as always, thank you so much. Thank you.